Well, hello and welcome to The Mariner and welcome to 2021. If you've not got the memo, uh, it's a whole other year. And that means uh, finally we get out from under the shadow of uh, 2020 and move hopefully into a little bit of uh, more open ground where we know what's going on. We know what uh, is happening now with this virus. We know at a personal level how to keep ourselves safe and hopefully uh, things are going to start to get a lot better on that front. Um, I've been keeping my eye on it, as uh, I've mentioned in previous podcasts. Uh, I was in China when SARS broke out uh, in the early 2000s. I think the thing that that gave me was a bit of a view into the fact that everyday life can change really, really quickly. I think people's ability to understand that in in 2020, was we were slow to develop. And there was a lot of press saying, it's the end of the world. And then there's loads of press saying it's going to be fine. And then there's government saying we've got this completely under control, where the reality of it was exactly what I kind of expected, which is that um, it's going to get bad. Life's going to change a lot really fast. And then over time, um, once the waves of this thing have kind of uh, died down, then things will get better. And there is no other course of action. The problem that we have with something like a coronavirus um, we're all very focused in on the coronavirus, the, the Rona, as uh, a friend, some of my friends call it. Um, there's many different sorts of coronaviruses, and they're part of everyday life uh, for us anyway. It's not something new that we have to deal with coronaviruses as a human population. The problem is the, the exact makeup and nature of, of this one, this one identified in 2019, coronavirus uh, uh, 2019. Um, COVID-19 has become, man, the press just goes on and on and on and on. And I think the trend that I see is a little bit worrying at the moment is the fact that um, the, the vaccine is now like the silver bullet that's going to save us all from everything. I think it's fair to say that the vaccine is part of a solution. Um, it's going to take a long time to get through the population. There's going to be countries where the vaccine is not easily able to be um, administered quickly. So that's going to create a situation where some parts of the world have got it, some parts haven't. Um, we are concerned as a human family that all members of the family uh, get to safety and get into a safe situation as quickly as they can from this. Um, so the story of COVID will only be uh, finished up when we have a, a global tactic to deal with it. And the release of the vaccine is only part of that. So I know that certainly for listeners who are in the UK and in Europe right now, particularly the UK, things are um, at, a, at, a, at a critical point. My own observations, and this is very much my own uh, research, is that give or take, this is following exactly the same pattern as the 2018, uh, sorry, the, the 1918, 100 years before 1918 Spanish flu um, epidemic. Um, that had a very similar uh, starting point. It was something that was already going on at the front lines. Obviously, at that time, we were at the end of the, the Great War, the First World War. And so there was a lot of people all interacting with each other, people that were um, undernourished, um, had all sorts of other ailments. And so uh, that, that flu was able to move through the population very quickly. It got called the Spanish flu because it was actually the Spanish who first started to say, hey, this is a problem we're dealing with it, um, you know, what's what's the deal for everyone else? But it was already prevalent in loads of different um, uh, arenas of, of, of war and in frontline uh, hospitals. It was already very much known about. So it's not like it came from Spain or anything like that. It was just the Spanish started talking about it first. 
then of course as people went back from the the front lines they took it back to their respective countries now the spread was different because um they had a situation where they were not able to travel as much as we are now and i think that we've all become crushingly aware of the fact that the, the 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 travel outside of your community outside of your bubble outside of your country whatever it is, that's what's transmitted this so quickly it's just it's just obvious it started in one place in china and now it's everywhere so you know it didn't like blow there on the wind we moved it around so the vaccine is part of the solution as we go into 2021 uh keeping yourself uh socially distanced from other people um keeping the mask on um being very careful about uh, who you're interacting with is uh is is the other part of the puzzle in all this and um hopefully as uh our knowledge gains and our ability to understand this grows we will start to come up with a tactic on a day-to-day that um that helps but I, I do see some absolute crap in the press which um is very worrying and unfortunately gives people uh completely the wrong ideas and this is not really meant to be a rant about covid because we're all completely sick of it but if you have a particular part of the population which has a very large uh risk um and then another part of the population that has a low risk um you can't then say take the whole overall number of how many people are going to be affected and say this is the risk you you need to subdivide and go okay where am i and where are the people that i love in these age groups and which uh risk factor are they facing so i see a lot of 20 and 30 year olds going oh there's only a 0. whatever percent chance of somebody dying from this it's like yeah in your age group <laughs> but you're the ones that are transmitting around to people for which you know you're dealing with whole numbers like 10 15% of people uh, over 75 are having a massive problem with this so um be considerate of others um be considerate of um the fact that your actions have a, an impact on other people we i've got a, a podcast coming up this week which is all about isolation there are some very serious side effects um long lasting psychological psychiatric side effects of isolation socially uh, socially isolating as a human being is not good for you it's not good for you at a biological level it's not good for you um you know in in the way that each day seems to you and i think that's something which um perhaps is getting a little bit lost amid the chaos of um well amid the chaos of everything else that's in the news at the moment i'm not going to get into uh what's going on in america at the moment but um let's remember that at a personal individual level um people need to be looked after i remember my mother now she's she's passed away but i remember when she was on her own after my father died that was a massively stressful situation for her she was socially isolated by the fact that her companion in life of you know 40 odd years had suddenly disappeared um that would be comparable to uh somebody who has a a tight group of friends and then is suddenly um unable to see those friends i had to literally counsel her as to not watching the news Uh, I took the opportunity yesterday because of events in the US and I you know I live relatively close to the US. I just watched about an hour of news like global news, MSNBC, uh, CNN and just wanted to kind of get up to speed and make sure I wasn't living in some little um self-confirming bubble that uh, uh had all of the facts outside of it. And uh, I got to say by the end of it I felt my heart rate elevated, I felt very anxious, I felt very much that um you know doom was upon us and it <laughs> to take a moment and just go okay but the rest of the world is fine um 
for those people who are socially isolated on their own, watching the news, very worried about their health, unable to communicate with other people, there is uh, damage that can be done in that scenario. And I want to cover some of that in uh, the, the podcast coming up on isolation. Just to remind us that all of these actions that we're taking, all of these um, restrictions that are in place are for the uh, prevention of further loss of life and for the preservation of uh, healthy and positive lives. And so for every single person that has not yet succumbed to uh, COVID but is in a risk uh, group, they are under pressure. They, they are psychologically uh, in, in a position where they need support, they need reassurance, they need whatever you can do with Zoom, Skype, WhatsApp, like faces, connection. Um, these things shouldn't be lost um, amid the uh, overwhelming chatter from the press about uh, all the other things that happen in the world. So this is a sailing podcast. I'm going to start talking about sailing in a second, which is something I know a lot more about. But um, <laughs> let's just remember that um, that social isolation, whilst it may um, preserve the length of life, it may not increase the, uh, the quality of life. So as always, as I say at the end of these podcasts, or wherever you are, I hope that you are safe and sound, um, sound of mind, sound of body and, and sound of spirit. You know, if there's someone you can reach out to, um, then then do it, because uh, the vaccine is not going to be some kind of um, cure all for this. It's part of our assault on the COVID-19 problem. It is not going to be, OK, everyone's got it and that's it. We have no idea now if people can get reinfected. We have no idea about the length of time that this particular vaccine works. There's um, also the fact that we already know there's an Indian mutation. There's a mutation which is in the UK, which moves very much faster. Will these vaccines be safe for that? Is something to be seen in time as with any vaccine. So I say uh, if there's something you can do today about COVID, wear your mask, socially distance, make contact with someone who is isolated and uh you know brighten their life okay so enough of all that <laughs> i've been very careful not to talk too much about covid i did do the one about um uh people being on their own and the fact that sailors as sailors we're kind of like a little bit more suited to that of being in small groups and being disconnected from the world um the one about isolation coming up this week will be um will be more kind of down that line. So 2021, let's uh, let's move on. Uh, let's have a, a chat about the kind of general direction with the podcast. Um, here's how it is from my point of view. I kind of, uh, I have the very, very lucky situation that lots of people write to me and share their stories with me. And so I have an overwhelming feeling when I open my uh, email uh, inbox, certainly directly after a podcast, that there are people listening and there are people enjoying it. So I'm gonna take it as read that if you're listening to my voice now, you have no particular problem with the way that I'm doing things and um, hopefully you'll be supportive of things going forward. What I recognize is that from a business point of view with the podcast, it's actually much more intelligent for me to create more content. Um, it's pretty much like uh, cumulative percentages in finance, um, lots of little, Point ones percents all adds up to lots, right? And obviously, if you're trying to produce something in the media uh, arena, uh, more content equals um, better. Um, it worries me that the quality of the content can go down, and it worries me that I might start getting off track with um, what is my uh, area of expertise in sailing, which is offshore sailing. But I think that 
with a couple of guests, we can patch up any gaps that I've got. I am very aware. I have had a lot, a lot, a lot of people connect with me and say, don't just end up doing loads and loads of interviews. Um, I think there are some people out there, um, the Ocean Sailing podcast, the On The Wind podcast. There's some wonderful uh, formats already existing that do a fantastic job of interviewing the, the leading lights in sailing. I think I'd like to do what I've been doing up to now, which is um, interview once in a while certain people who kind of come across my um, radar. I have made gentle contact with uh, a chap who is in the uh, enviable position that he found a Riva motorboat, which if you don't know Rivas, they are the Ferraris or Lamborghinis of, um, of motorboats. He found one kind of rotting and rusting away in the back of a shipyard and his intention is to to uh, renovate it um he's a private individual and it's a uh, one of the you know in car i love cars as you know um it barn finds for boats are a bit a bit rare i kind of had a barn find when i bought um challenger oh, i guess i had a barn find when i bought falcon as well you know what i've been lucky with that but i do a lot of looking at boats <laughs> so i would but finding a reaver that's that's something else so Things like that and the interview we did with Rob, the interview we did with Philip, I like talking to people like that that otherwise wouldn't um, wouldn't kind of come come to you. So uh, I'm not going to change that too much, but I'm thinking that I I think I can do a sailing podcast uh, every day, Monday to Friday. That, that to me, even saying it sounds a little bit crazy. God knows what we're going to put in there. But, you know, between the Vendée Globe, the Olympics, the match racing, the cruising world and and boat renovations and exciting expeditions that people are doing and my own things thrown in there and what's happening with the company spartan and there's a lot of stuff going on and sailing is such a small area of the internet um i think there are people that are pretty pretty hungry for it so uh, with some trepidation i will um i will now attempt to <laughs> make five podcasts a week all right but uh i know that one of the most important things for you as a listener is uh, continuity and knowing it's going to be there and, and getting excited um i'm looking at the moment to uh, bring more people in on what i'm doing with my business and uh particularly people to help me run the the, the media side of it because i think it can be very beneficial um i will give it my best shot um what can you do to help uh write to me write to me, give me ideas, tell me about your sailing, tell me about your boating, tell me about your clubs. Um, I got a fantastic email from, now I got to be careful, I'm, I'm here in Nova Scotia, as I, I told you, it's about 44 degrees north, it is uh, minus one outside, the sun is streaming through the windows here in the sunroom, and um, I've got my sunglasses on, which is great when you're looking at a PC, I can tell you, because the polarization on the monitor um, is in line with my uh, sunglasses so I can see, but the one on my Mac, <laughs> which is where I look at the internet, they don't seem to know about sunglasses down at Apple and don't seem to know that um, if you don't line things up correctly, you can't view the monitor. I have to say, we all know this from when you're on, on the boat, you should always wear polarized sunglasses when you're on a boat anyway, because it allows you to see what's beneath the water a lot better. It reduces the glare. Um, good for your eyes, of course, to wear a better quality of sunglasses. And I don't think the cheap, crappy ones are polarized anymore. So if it's polarized, it's probably a decent pair of sunglasses. But then when you all end up looking at those instruments and the instruments, you look at them in your sunglasses completely blank. You're like, is it turned off? What's the deal? And you cock your head to one side and the, the uh, alignment of the polarization in your lenses 
goes out of phase with what's going on on the unit and suddenly you can see what's going on. So that um, I will now lift my sunglasses a little bit so I can, <laughs> it's a nice thing to be this far north. And then uh, people say to me, oh, I thought, um, I thought Canada was like freezing cold at this time of year. I thought Nova Scotia was, uh, you know, like the, the North Pole or something. It, it's really not. And it's, um, it's quite lovely, but you do have to have a room with a lot of windows. So um, who's this writing to me? Uh, yeah, uh, Mr. Miller, Gordy Miller. Yeah, he wrote to me from Australia and uh, he sent me a fantastic uh, picture of his boat at the dock there. Um, yeah, so he sent me a fantastic uh, email here, which is just, it's just news. It's just uh, chit chat and um, his boat, yeah, 35 foot Laurie Davidson. It's a racer cruiser. He's converting it into uh, a bit more of a single hander boat. He's got some questions about NK autopilots, which I'm guessing NK is quite a long way away from home when you're in Australia. Um, I don't know what it is with it. NKE is a brilliant system, but for some reason it just seems to be like geographically limited to, to France and French territories. And then once in a while, a boat kind of gets out of there that's got NKE stuff. I've got it on Challenger and I've got it on um, Pride Nova Scotia. And uh, yeah, it's, it's great stuff. In terms of the wiring, it's amazing. It just has this three wire system, a black wire, a white wire, and then like a bare wire. And whenever you want to connect anything together, you just make sure black wire goes to black wire, white wire goes to white wire, and then you twist the, the, the bare ones together and, um, and everything works great. So uh, I'm not quite sure why it never got going elsewhere, but um, he's got a few questions about that. He's also asking me if I've got any, uh, anything for sale for him. This is good. I like this, mate. This is never, never get uh, confused about the fact that um, I am very down to earth when it comes to uh, sailing. What have you got? What have I got? Can we trade? Is, uh, is the way that you get anything done when, uh, when you're dealing with boats. There's very few people in the world have actually got the budget that suits the boat they've got. Um, all the rest of us are just trying to get by with duct tape and, uh, and favors from mates. So um, thanks for thanks for writing to me there, Gordy. But yeah, if, if you've got a little bit of news you want to share with me, I get some wonderful long emails. I get some nice little postcards as well. And it's um, that is the way that we'll be able to have enough content to be able to do five days a week here. So um, that's the way that things are going. There is lots going on with Spartan and for me personally in sailing this year. Um, I'll, I'll brief you on some of that when we get towards the, uh, the end of this uh, show this week. But, um, but what is the show? Well, here we go. Um, it's, it's me with a little notepad and um, it says, um, you know, a couple of little things and we'll try and talk around them. These questions and tangents ones are just my opportunity to just uh, chat to you about sailing. Um, let's, let's get going. Okay, so the first one is uh, the Offshore Sailors Group. So I started a Facebook group a little while back. Um, I'm going to do a lot more with it this year. It was a case of just slowly getting numbers together. We're about 300 strong on there now. And um, it's for anybody and everybody to put anything on there that specifically deals with uh, offshore sailing. It's called the Offshore Sailors Group. That's on Facebook. Just search for it in the, the bar at the top. It is a public group. Although I do see in the system keeps asking me to uh, allow people in, although I have specifically checked and made sure that it's um, uh, it's just public group and anybody can join. But um, I'll, I'll get to the bottom of that. It's just a bit of uh, bit of admin. But um, yeah, get uh, people chatting on there. What are you doing? Where are you going? Any questions you've got? There's a lot of people that are into this aspect of sailing and it is a little bit different to inshore sailing it's a little bit different from cruising which can often be very coastal um what is offshore sailing well if you can't see the land let's uh, let's let's make it quite simple it doesn't mean that you're like going to cross oceans and sail around the world or what have you it just means that you're looking to go a little bit further and are going to need to have that slightly 
raised level of uh, of skill with uh, with your nav, with your meteorology, and with your ability to keep the boat together. That's that's I think what we've got going on there. So, yeah, come and uh, come and join us, the uh, Offshore Sailors uh, Group on Facebook. Um, next is uh, the Vendée. The Vendée. Let's have a quick chat about what's going on there. I haven't really got into this very much uh, in the you know they've been at sea now 60, 64 days and. Um, there's been a lot going on. They're on their way back up the Atlantic. I think the story's starting to heat up. There's a number of good um, uh, sources online, um, on YouTube, uh, podcasts, uh, Facebook. You can find lots of stuff about the Vendée there. I will add my voice to it now as we're getting into the interesting bit. I consider myself to be a bit of an expert on the Vendée Globe because I'm playing the virtual regatta. <laughs> if you haven't got into this, it's uh, it's a game uh, uh, on your phone and uh, allows us armchair sailors, which I am an armchair sailor at the moment. I haven't, uh, I haven't been on a boat since... Um, Oh my goodness! I haven't been actually racing since February of 2021, so uh, I'm I'm as armchair as anybody else. But yes, I've become an expert on the Vendée because every three or four hours I click on my phone and feel like I'm back there. But for those who are actually engaged in the race um, at sea for real, it's been uh, it's been a bit of a humdinger. And um, some of the news which is uh, at the forefront at the moment, of course, has been. Pip Hare, who has been uh, replacing her rudder at sea, and I just thought I'd go through that a little bit and uh, chat through what she's had to do. Firstly, um, I have no idea if this can ever get to Pip Hair, but well done, because that is a, a, a big job to do. One of the things you do with these kind of um, race boats is you do drop your rudders before you get involved in a, a big event and make sure that they will come out easily. If you've ever um, had to pull rudders in and out of boats, it can be a bit of a hassle if um, if it's not been out for a while. Obviously, aluminum components and stainless steel components start to fizz, start to um, oxidize alongside each other. And uh, you end up with a situation where, you know, if you look at like rust, uh, like iron rust, um, it's got 10 times the volume of the metal that it's made for. And I'm not sure exactly what the factors would be with manganese alloy and aluminum and more complicated things, but I imagine it's in the same kind of area. So a little amount of rust can suddenly start to fill and pack out uh, a bearing, can start to fill and pack out whatever system it's involved into until it's completely impossible to remove it. And that's where you have to get in there with the heat and try and heat things, shrink things, do whatever it is you can do and try and make enough space to crack that um, that, that buildup of, of rust of whatever material it might be from and, uh, and get it out. So before you go um, offshore, with a boat like an Amarca 60, um, then you, you really need to make sure, can you drop the rudders out? And Pip's got a spare rudder on board. I don't know if she's got one or two, but she's um, she's definitely got the one, which is great. And she's been able to, as we know now, put it into place. But what exactly would that mean? Well, the first thing is that she's got to find a bit of ocean where she's um, able to just slow the boat down. Um, it's the idea of like stopping, it just doesn't really happen. On a, on a boat like uh, hers, the rig is about 100 foot, give or take. There's enough windage on that rig that uh, in anything other than dead calm conditions, the boat is in motion. So there's going to be hydraulic forces on the rudder as, as, uh, as you're going along. She would have to disconnect the rose joint at the top. There's a kind of little universal joint there where a tie bar comes in from the other rudder um, and then uh, that's what activates the the uh, the the motion of the of the of the rudder the, the 
the helm um, uh, on your boat, whether it be uh, a wheel or a tiller, um, is connected to the rudders. If you've got a single rudder, you're going to have a quadrant on top. If it's um, some kind of uh, tiller arrangement that's going to double rudders like you have on Iomaka 60, then you have a small quadrant in there, um, which is uh, operating from your individual tiller over to one of your rudders and then a tie bar goes across to the second rudder. That's the system I've got on uh, on the Pride of Nova Scotia here. If you have double uh, double helms, double tillers up on the deck, which was like my first Imarca 60 Spartan, um, then the situation is a lot more uh, simple to understand. Um, the, the tiller is directly obviously on top of the rudder stock, but there's still a tie bar beneath the deck because when the autopilot works, you'll normally have two autopilot rams and they will be, uh, one ram will be operating both rudders. And obviously they need to stay uh, aligned with each other. And the amount of toe in and toe out on the rudders is, is critical. And that's the tie bar that allows you. Toe in is where the front edge of the rudder points slightly in towards the center line. Toe out would be where it would point slightly out away from the center line. And the designer and the, the, the period of time that you get to, um, develop your understanding of your boat and develop the performance of your boat would tell you exactly how much toe in or toe out you want on your rudders. It's normally a little bit of toe in. Um, so she would be um, in a situation where she's got to go inside the back of the boat. Um, I would imagine that probably uh, if I was doing it, not that I know the exact details of uh, Pip's situation, but I'd be probably looking to run slightly and get the boat going as slow as I can, as flat as I can, and as simply as I as I can. Um, to that end, I would be, uh, you're in the back of the boat with the waves pummeling up against the back of the boat. When a boat is going uh, a lot slower than the wave train, then you get this like bonk, this bounce and bang coming up on the back of those flat transoms as the waves hit you. So you're in quite an interesting uh, space inside the boat, limited headroom, um, not really designed for, you know, ease of access, although everything's very open in there. There's no shroudings around anything. There's nothing covering anything up, but you're in a weird space to begin with. You've got the waves smashing up against the back of you. You've got to disconnect the tie bar at the top. There might be some kind of clamp at the top, which is how the tie bar attaches to the, um, to the rudder. And then the, the rudder itself is, um, at that point, basically free to move, give or take, uh, you're gonna have to re remove the, the the collars that hold it in place. But she will have no doubt um, had uh, her preparatures will have will have removed the rudders before the race to make sure that there's nothing else in there stopping it from uh, moving. The rudder should slide in and slide out relatively easily, and then it's held in place by some kind of um, collar, like on Falcon and uh, sorry Pride Nova Scotia. I still get confused what I should call that boat. Um, the Pride Nova Scotia and my first boat Spartan, they had. Um, uh, manganese alloy uh, like collars at the top where there were two uh, semicircles of metal with two um, bolts going across uh, joining the two semicircles together which fitted into a little groove on the rudder and then stopped the rudder from falling down <clears throat> through the bottom of the boat. Very very, very simple situation, um, very critical couple of bolts to make sure um, are not uh, in any way uh, corroding or breaking. Um, the rudder won't fall out the bottom of the boat if the uh, if the collet was to break at the top because of all the other gear that's attached to it inside. But once that's removed, um, then the only thing holding it in is the is the collet at the top. So um, the top of the rudder stock might not be visible because of deck plate or a little cap on top of the rudder. That's what mine have always had. But once that cap's removed, uh, the inside of the top of the rudder stock will probably have some kind of little bar or some fixing position, some screw in something or other that you can then attach a rope to it. Um, 
when I, I've had to do this once and I did it only for a trial to see if it worked on uh, on my boat Spartan. I've never done it on Falcon here because I've never had the rudders out yet. So God help me if I was to set off the way I am now, not having taken the rudders out, I don't know if I could complete this task because I'd probably have to start smacking and banging and, uh, you know, trying to leave the thing down through the bottom of the boat, which would be ridiculous. Um, for Pip, I would imagine that having been prepped for the Vendee Globe, she'd be pretty happy with the fact the rudder's going to drop down through the bottom of the boat. Now, I don't know Pip's boat exactly, but I would imagine that she's got JP3 bearings in there. JP3 is a brand of bearing uh, which makes one specifically for uh, race boats. And those bearings, the, the basic concept of them is that it's a roller bearing around the um, around the rudder stock, as you might imagine. Um, and then it's, it's made into a ring, which has got a generally kind of uh, rounded edge to it. So the cup, which is inside the boats, uh, inside the hull of the boat is rounded. This bearing unit, which is on the shaft of the rudder is also rounded. And what that means is that the bearing uh, allows the, the, the um, rudder to rotate in the way that you'd expect for a rudder, but it also allows it to be in a, a massively um, it doesn't have to be aligned with the center of the bearing. The bearing itself can rock and roll inside its housing, inside that the race can can move relative to the, the housing of the bearing. I hope that makes some kind of sense. Um, what it means is that if you had one bearing in front of you and you had it over a rudder, you'd be able to, there'd be a massive range of mo movement. And what this means is that we can have uh, a rudder unit uh, fitted into a boat and in terms of getting it aligned with the unusual contours of the bottom of the boat versus the the top deck of the boat you don't have to like line everything up perfectly you can normally get 20 to 23 degrees movement on a jp3 high-end race bearing and that will allow you to basically shove the rudder up through the bottom of the boat not have to worry particularly about the bottom of the boat being a hundred percent aligned with the top of the rudder the bearing itself will take up any movement and there'll be one at the bottom and there'll be one at the top so between the two of them they can allow you to to pop your rudders into the boat and not have to be uh, altering the contours of the deck or the hull to make up for the fact that um, the, the the bearing itself is not 100% aligned with the center line of the stock of the rudder. Does that make sense? I feel like that somewhere in there. Just play it back a few times, you'll be fine. <laughs> so um, these uh, bearings, though, they'll be made of uh, some kind of manganese alloy, probably, and the uh, the the. The, the actual roller bearings that are inside it, the, the rollers are made of tourlon, which is a ceramic material. It's um, characterized being like a kind of, um, you can get it and it's like a, a bright yellow or you can get it and it's more like a kind of bronzy color, like slightly older bronzy kind of brown color. Um, if you drop one of those little balls on the deck, as we all know, you hear the ping and then you hear the plop and that's it because they bounce so hard and so high, they're always disappear over the side of the boat and they're frighteningly expensive what they are yeah one ball might only be one dollar but there's like 40 of them in one mass slider so an expensive um ceramic material which um has got very long uh, life and doesn't need any lubrication apart from the water that's coming into the bearing anyway and um hopefully uh, very easy to get the rudder out. So it seems so far not too difficult. Now we have to imagine that obviously that Pip is in the middle of nowhere on the race of her life. And so um, she's going to be giving this as much uh, focus and attention as possible. The rudder should come out, but that's based on a couple of things. Um, how much hydraulic pressure is on the rudder. Now, it's actually easier to get a rudder stock out of the boat if the rudder itself has been sheared off by um, something that you've driven over. 
uh, for Pip, the issue was a crack in the stock. And I would be nervous if I was her or on her shore team. Has there been any change in the uh, thickness of the stock because of the crack? Um, that's why I think she kind of got onto this as soon as she could. If the stock itself was to fail between the, uh, the JP3 bearing on the deck and the JP3 bearing in the hull, if it was to fail in there, it might get very difficult to get the uh, remains of the stock out through the bottom of the hull. You're going to get a lot of water ingress. Obviously, as soon as that stock starts to move down and out of the boat, um, you're very quickly going to get into a situation where you've got water coming in through the back. Now, how much water is going to come in? The hole that those uh, things would leave in the bottom of the boat would be about three inches uh, across. So say like seven centimeters, something like that, right? Um, maybe a little bit more, uh, definitely not any less. Um, a one inch hole, a 2.5 centimeter hole will allow 10,000 liters of water into the boat per hour if it's one meter below the waterline. So what's that in Imperial? If it's three feet below the waterline and it's a one inch diameter hole, it'll allow two and a half thousand gallons in per hour. Now the rudder, uh, the rudders on that boat are actually very close to the surface. So there's gonna be quite a bit of water suddenly kind of coming uh, up through that hole, but it's in no way gonna create a problem. And if she hasn't got um, dedicated uh, uh, um, pumping arrangements in her lazarette. No doubt she's rigged it before any of this started, but there's suddenly gonna be a lot of water moving around. She may or may not have a neoprene gaiter that goes over the rudder. Uh, on the boats that I've got um, here on the Pride of Nova Scotia, there is a, a carbon collar, which comes up, which sits about uh, like 30 centimeters, like a foot high inside the lazarette. So even if you drop the rudder out, uh, there'll be a splash, but there won't be any like water running into the uh, into the boat. If there's a neoprene one, it's the same kind of deal. I, I don't know exactly the interior so fit out on, um, on on Pip's boat, but I imagine it'll be something like that so that you're going to get that splash, you're going to get that amount of water in, but it shouldn't be too much. The force of water running underneath the boat is what you're trying to minimize by slowing the boat down and the hydraulic pressures on the rudder um, also slowed and reduced by going as as uh, as slowly as possible with the boats. But the, the the worry for me in doing that job would be that you release the collets and the rudder is um, still staying in position because um, because you know there's hydraulic pressure on it. It's being pressed up against its bearings. But when that rudder goes down, you need to wait until there's almost no boat speed and the rudder goes straight down and out the bottom of the boat and then is trailing behind on the rope that you attach to it. Um, you do not want to be in a situation where you're moving you know, with any kind of pressure on, on, the, on the appendages underwater and then uh, the top securing position, the deck securing position is removed because you knock the rudder down say 10 inches and then suddenly the pressure underwater increases and starts to cant the rudder over because the forces are just massive. So um, I would imagine that the move on her behalf would have been to um, get everything as ready as possible, get the line in place, and then literally to knock, bonk the rudder as hard down as she possibly could um, uh, from, from on deck and then get into the lazarette and make sure it was cleared out the bottom of the boat as, as, as fast as possible. You do not want to be damaging those bearings. So um, then when it comes to putting the new rudder in, obviously Pip has completed this. So whatever method she used um, was definitely successful. The method for getting the rudder back in is, uh, is interesting. The uh, dagger boards are often made with a lot of um, 
space in between them. Rudders, not so much. And that's because uh, in this situation, we we want the rudder to be either neutrally buoyant or negatively buoyant, but there's no requirement on it for it to be positively buoyant. And we want as much strength as we can from a rudder, so there's gonna be as much material in there as we can. So the basic gig is that line that was attached to your rudder when you knocked it out the bottom of the boat is now perfectly positioned to bring the new rudder into play. And this rudder will be negatively or potentially uh, maybe buoyant, uh, negatively buoyant. So it's going to be relatively simple, hopefully, to get it to um, come into position under the boat. But if there's any flow at all underneath the boat, the rudder is just going to be horizontal. It'll be under the boat and the head of the stock will be at the hole where it needs to go, but it will be just uh, riding horizontally underneath the boat. And the, the trick in all of this, the trick that Pip has obviously uh, successfully completed is getting the bottom of that rudder to swing down and then allow you to start pulling the stock up through the, the boat. Now, for me personally, uh, when I've had to do this before, I connected a line that went between the um, end of my boom and the one of my backstays. And then from a mid position, well, not kind of mid position, like one third of the way along that line was directly over the place on the deck where I wanted to pull the rudder up when I did my trial. It was just a just a just uh, an attempt at doing this in port, never having to do it at sea. But you want to get some kind of pulling mechanism, some kind of way of getting the rudder to come up. And the only way of getting something above it that will do that is to um, have a line above. Can you pull it up on your own? Possibly. Like it might be that it's completely free enough that it'll come up and the, the movement allowed in those bearings is very forgiving for, for drawing it up through the first one and then getting everything lined up to come up through the second one. But I think um, it's smart moves. Remember, you're still in the middle of the ocean. You're still moving around. You've got the waves rolling over the back of the boat as you go slowly. Um, maybe positioning some line above to then give yourself some purchase upwards might be something we'll find out later that that Pip has done. Um, it was certainly necessary for me. So the, the trick of it is to get the, the rudder to go down. If it is negatively buoyant rudder, it will happen relatively uh, naturally, but the boat's got to be going as slowly, slowly, slowly as possible. Um, neither going forwards, nor going sideways, nor going backwards, just stopped. So what we did see is that um, Pip moved into an area of lighter breeze so that she can make this repair, and that would be the, the reason for that. So um, she's now on her way and, uh, and back into the race. Um, and uh, yeah, fantastic piece of work. We already knew that Pip had um, uh, great um, skills on board the boat, practical skills on board the boat, tenacity. Um, I did uh, love what she was uh, writing about um, with uh, the, the thing that she'd um, done to her boat. Uh, when she very first found out that um, the, uh, the, the rudder was broken, she wrote this. The crack is in the stock between the deck and the hull, just underneath where the quadrant attaches. And every time the pilot was going to move the rudder, the crack was getting a little bit worse. I have no choice but to change the port rudder. If I continue sailing hard, the stock will fail under load in a matter of hours. Naturally, I am completely devastated about this failure and what it means to my race. But the only thing to do right now is to put racing on hold and focus on solving this problem to keep both me and Medallia safe. Um, she says, I am devastated, but I'm also accepting. This has happened and it cannot be changed. The only action now is to deal with the problem in the best way possible and then move forwards from there. How fantastic. What an absolutely brilliant attitude. And that's it. There's always with issues at sea, you have to separate it up. There's the problem 
And then there's your attitude to the problem. You can't do anything about the problem because the problems happen. It's a physical thing. Maybe you could have done more maintenance. Maybe you could have checked that thing. Maybe, you know, whatever. A zillion things could come to mind. That, And then there's your attitude. Your attitude is the one thing you have control over. You can be like super sour about it. You can be super angry about it. You can be flippant and sarcastic to people that are trying to help you out. You can be dismissive. You can be depressed. You can be positive. You can be upbeat. You can be, you can choose that. You're not actually dependent on that thing to then create your reality going forwards. I would say you need to have a cup of tea. You need to get some sugar in you. You need to maybe even um, take a little sleep. You know, if you know, okay, I'm going to fix this rudder. Maybe it's time to get a power hour in and just come to this like as well as you can. I have had it where I've recognized um, pieces of damage which are not acute in that, you know, um, this is going to, need fixing right here right now which sometimes jobs do but i've had it where there's things that are cracking like oh my god like you know but then you realize like i'm really having a problem functioning with this i'm really having a problem accepting this and uh so the best course of action at that point is actually to go to sleep um and to give yourself the gift of a slightly different attitude towards it because um you know in in the offshore sailors uh, world an hour three hours whatever you can get might be enough a for your subconscious mind as we learned about in that podcast about sleep it gives your subconscious sleeping mind the opportunity to go through what needs to happen it gives you the opportunity to come up with um solutions which might not be so obvious up front sometimes a really non-instinctual way of dealing with something is the most effective and you need to kind of have a bit of time to think about that you may have to think about where your tools are you may have to think about what the safety concerns are um, a lot of different things and a little bit of sleep can be a gift at that point as they, the military say um, sleep is a weapon and it can really help you combat the problems um, sugar and oxygen and by oxygen i mean you know, just breathing and just spending some time, just getting oxygen in, dropping your calm dark side levels, all of which can lead to you having the ability to have a much more positive, much more accepting problem solving attitude towards a problem and making a better solution. Um, it's the, the biggest headache for me when you're on boats um, and there's a problem and then you have the problem of whatever the physical thing was that went wrong and then you've got the problem of the really crappy attitude of the people that you then have to work with to solve the first problem it's like this is we don't people don't have to act like this we can just we can just get on with this, this is easy so um well done to pip for getting that done i'm going to be uh watching uh her moves now as she moves up the coast of um of Argentina, but the other person which has uh, been in the uh, in in the press in the last uh, couple of days, unfortunately, is uh, Isabel Josky, who um, she was in uh, a pretty pretty good position. Um, she was eleventh place, um, eleven hundred miles off the coast of Argentina, and um, she unfortunately has had this issue with her keel. So I thought we'd discuss that a little bit as well. What's going on there? So. The way that these canting keels work on open 60s, basically the maximum draft of one of those boats is about four and a half meters. Uh, I say about, it is. That's They're all going for the maximum on it. So four and a half meters is the maximum draft. And the keel comes up to the bottom of the boat, to the hull, where just inside the hull, if you were to look at the bottom of the boat, you wouldn't really see much, but just inside the hull is uh, a giant pin, hardened steel pins something like Aquamet 22, which is a super hard steel, um, which is then able to bear the phenomenal loads which are created by an open 60 keel at sea. So what, what are those loads? Um, firstly, we've got the weight of the keel. Now, 
you know how much weight is in any boat's keel is um is, is a bit of a secret to uh to all and sundry unless you actually uh, own the boat or know the boat or work on the boat design the boat these are the kind of figures they're keeping um pretty quiet but boats are getting lighter they're using um a lot more um dynamic stability to create writing moments so keel weights are dropping at the front of the fleet but for those at the back of the fleet you'll be looking at anywhere between Three and a half and four and a half thousand kilos um, would be the weight at the end of the bowl. Uh, sorry, at the weight at the end of the uh, keel blade itself. Now, a keel blade um, will be made of stainless steel. They are, are all made of that now, um, thanks to rules from Imoka, which have standardized it. Um, so this this blade, the steel blade, comes up uh, into the boat. It's got this hardened steel pin, and then there'll be a certain amount of the keel blade that goes up above the pin uh, to a point where it's acted upon by one or two hydraulic um, rams. So the hydraulic rams move laterally across the boat from port to starboard. They act in unison, one pulling, one pushing, um, and they act on the top of the keel head. And there'll be about I don't know. I've seen I've seen the ones with the longest possible keel rams, which are actually manually operated keels. Um, Derek Hatfield's boat, Active House, was designed by Bernard Nevelt, and it had a uh, a lever arm above the keel pin, which was I don't know, like one point five meters, one point six meters long, because you're actually moving the keel with hydraulic with uh, with uh, with manual setup with pulleys, sixteen to one on either side. Um, for the hydraulic ones, you're going to be dealing about, I'm, I'm guessing like 60 centimeters is probably about the max, like two foot, not much more than that. So you've got like 13 foot of keel below the water and two foot of keel inside the boat. That's like three and a half meters below the water and, uh, and about um, 0.6 of a meter inside the boat. So we all know a bit about levers, but you can obviously imagine if you've got a very fat, heavy kid at the end of a three and a half meter lever, you're going to need a pretty enormous kid to get on the other end uh, to balance this thing out when the lever arm on the other side is only 0.6 of a meter. So the forces at play on the keel pin and at the um, top of the uh, lever arm for the keel are massive. And these, these rams uh, force the keel up on one side or the other, forcing it to windward. 90% of the time you're using a keel, you're moving up to windward. There are a couple of occasions where it's very light winds and you drop the keel down to leeward to cant the keel uh, into a, a more favorable position to let the sails hang in their design shape and create motion, even though the wind's very, very light. But 90, 95% of the time, it's all moving the keel to windward. And then uh, and then off you go upwind. Because remember, if you're canting the keel, it's because you're on an upwind angle. And so there's the dynamic loads of the boat as it bounces through the uh, ocean. The keel is being held out, held up by these two rams and the forces, the dynamic forces which are going through the keel pin and through the um, hydraulic rams that are controlling the keel and through the lever arm are enormous um, to the point that they have to massively over-engineer the hydraulics on these things because although the hydraulic, line, hydraulic lines and the hydraulic rams are able to take the static loads, the dynamic loads of the keel bouncing around can be transmitted back through the ram and back through the hydraulic hoses and some of the variants in around the early 2000s where they're trying to make things lighter and lighter and lighter, um, it would just blow the hoses. You'd get um, uh, uh, shock waves running through the hydraulic hoses that would blow the hoses. So it's all serious, seriously heavy stuff. 
Um, I actually have an experience of cracking a, a keel ram, um, which I can I can bring to this. Um, when I was doing the Velux Five Oceans race in 2011, um, I had not uh, checked uh, anything to do with the keel on my boat, and and herein goes the logic. If we had taken the keel apart and found anything wrong with it, I would have been unable to join the race because. Uh, we just didn't have enough money. We had no money at all. Uh, we made it happen on an absolute shoestring. So the thought was, whether sensible or not, remember I'm only risking my own life in this, that basically we checked the, everything out as much as we could, but we didn't take the keel apart. The keel, uh, one of the keel rams, I had two keel rams made by, uh, uh, what's it called? Caraboni, aren't they? Caraboni rams? Carboni or Caraboni? One of those. Uh, Italian uh, a manufacturer who builds um, super lightweight rams. You can even get rams that are like made of titanium and, and, and super, super light for, for racing functions. Very, very expensive, as you might imagine. And the rams themselves, they act on the, uh, on the keel head, but then they need to be articulating themselves because you can't have them static inside the boat and then moving uh, the, 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 the top of the keel, which is then uh, requires the rams to, to, to move. So they are inside what we call trunnions, which are giant kind of uh, circular um, holders for the ram, which then come out on the sides to uh, uh, pins that secure them into the boat. So imagine like a clock face, the ram is coming out of the center of the clock face towards you. And at the nine o'clock and at the three o'clock position are giant uh, pins and bearings that then allow this annular trunnion to uh, to move uh, uh, around, move up and down particularly to allow the ram to take the correct uh, orientation relative to the keel head as the keel head moves. So you've got the rams, you've got the trunnions, you've got the fixings into the, the uh, inside of the hull, you've got the hydraulic lines and you've got the hydraulic pump. So this is quite a complex system which has got uh, a lot that can go wrong. And it's the exact reason why I don't have uh, an open 60 with um, with a uh, canting keel for this West around the world uh, record attempt, because the the likelihood of, of breaking one of those elements is is very, very large. And the amount of time that I'm expecting to go upwind, it would be a ridiculous um, thing to expect nothing to go wrong. Uh, when you do the Vendee Globe, about 66% of your time, the wind is uh, abaft the beam. And at that point, the keel is hardly canted at all, maybe just a couple of degrees, um, not very much whatsoever. So um, my experience with cracking the keel ram, I was about 350 miles off the finish of the Velux Five Oceans race, and I was in second position. And I heard a big clunk when I was inside the boat, um, not very rough conditions, just suddenly clunk. So I immediately looked up and I felt the whole boat like shiver. So I thought, Jesus, I've, I've hit something. So I immediately went to the back, checked to see if the one of the rudders had been sheared off or hit or impacted or damaged. Couldn't see anything there. Um, lifted up the dagger board that was down. I had already lost a dagger board um, earlier on in the race and replaced it. So I was you know, used to the fact that that can happen if you drive over something, but the dagger boards are fine. Looking up at all the rigging, checking all the lashings, checking everything. Like it's a large load that's been moved. I've really felt it through the boat and think of how tuned into the boat I would be after 40 odd thousand miles on it. Um, I just couldn't work it out. And I went back down below and I kind of, anyway, after like an hour of checking the boat, um, I thought, well, I must have just hit something at the front. And then as I lay on the bunk, this kind of like V shaped bunk that goes across the boat uh, in front of the nav station. I look down at the keel box and the keel box is the bit inside the boat where the head of the keel is. Um, at the bottom of it, it's got the keel pin housing and then it's a, a kind of carbon box with a, a carbon lid that goes onto it. 
in which the ends of the rams and the top of the keel are moving. And I looked and just one of the one of the kind of rubbers where the keel ram went into the keel box, it just looked a bit weird. And I went over and touched it and it moved in an unexpected fashion. I kind of grabbed hold of it and realized that one of the rams had completely cracked off. Now we're talking about a piece of steel, which is probably five centimeters across, like two inches across, and it's hardened Aquamet 22. This is incredibly tough stuff and it's broken. Like jeepers, what am I going to do here? So the first person I called actually was Brad Van Loo, who was one of the other competitors in the race, but had been a real mentor to me. And I said, you know, you know these boats better than anybody. How how serious is this? And he said, well, with the weather ahead and the amount of distance that we've got to go, and you've still got one ram holding the the the, the keel, just center the keel in the middle, and then um, do not do not count the keel, and that one ram will hold it. So. That was uh, fantastic news for me. But the fact that I had two rams available immediately identifies to you that I had a which has a slightly older uh, setup on the boat. These were big rams. Um, it was from the early days of canting keels and they were overbuilding everything. Um, and that's exactly where you want to be at with canting keels, right? Isabel's situation now is it sounds like she only had one ram. And I have actually seen a number of boats that... Uh, that only have one ram because they're trying to make the boat as light and light, light as possible. And the rams that I see in operation, I remember I went on board um, a ZAM, which was the 2011 Vonde, uh, uh, Volvo boat uh, run by Ian Walker on behalf of the United Amer Emirates. And I looked at the rams inside there and man, they were like super skinny, like uh, not much bigger than a thermos flask as opposed to the rams on my boat, which had been like a five gal bucket, you know? So, um, I was able to get in and uh, and had no further problems from my keel. Uh, I will say this, uh, when I inspected the broken parts later on, I discovered that there was existing corrosion 60% of the way through. So the, I don't know exactly when the, 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 the it cracked, but I could only, as we've said before, you have to kind of like um, believe that the boat has a little personality of its own. I think it was trying to hold on as long as it could, if you want to view things in that way. And it held until it was... Uh, just 350 miles to go in flat water ahead of me. And I was able to take that second position. For Isabel, she's in a very different position. Now, what happens if that gets completely out of control? Alex Thompson actually experienced this in the 2006 Velux 5 Oceans race, where um, I can't remember if he broke the top of his keel head or exactly what it was, but they lost control of the top of the keel head on the, uh, on the boat. And that means that the gravity will hold that mass of that keel uh, vertical vertical but the ocean is moving the hull of the boat around which then means that the relationship between the head of the keel and the inside of the boat the keel box where the, the it should be secured suddenly it gets beyond the um the, the limits of what's possible if the boat starts to rock uh, a greater angle relative to the keel than the confines of the inside of that keel box the head of the keel will start to destroy the center of the boat and indeed alex had to abandon his boat um, because that was the situation he was facing where um, the head of the keel was out of control it was rough conditions and the keel started to rip the boat into pieces the uh, the hull of the boat was actually found many years later i think 2000 and was that 2015 or something? They found it like uh, ashore in uh, Chile or some somewhere crazy like that. Someone will have to remind me of the story. But um, the boat continued to float, but it was no longer a, a viable 
vessel. It was um, destroyed in the very center of the boat by the by the keel. So Isabel initially, when she discovers she had this problem, um, she replaced the uh, the active keel ram with a uh, a false ram, is what it says in the report, which would be basically something that's able to block out that area and hold the top of the keel in place. Um, it sounds like that has failed, and and that's a real pity. Um, the the forces that are in play at the top of that hull are not to be um, underestimated. For myself, because I always played the what if game, I um, and obviously I've been through this situation with a keel ram. The only real solution I could ever come across was the fact that with the two keel set up, two ram sorry set up that I had, I had strong points on either side in the shape of the trunnions and the fixings inside the hull that that were holding the trunnions, and so I could take a Dyneema and put it around the top of the keel in whatever fashion made sense and bring it back to the trunnion on both sides and then uh, secure the top of the keel in that in that way. If uh, Isabel has only got uh, one keel ram, um, then she's only able to, the only way of securing it would be to have some solid something or other that goes in there that, that secures the keel. If that has failed or the top of the keel has failed or whatever that keel, uh, false keel ram runs up against has failed, there is no way to stop the keel from moving. There's nothing strong enough inside the boat that can hold the top of the keel once the boat and the keel start to move relative to each other. So unfortunately, it looks like she will be heading in uh, off the race course, which is a, a great loss to the race because she's been doing fantastically well. Um, and and always, I'm you know, I'm so behind women getting into offshore sailing. I have found uh, with all the miles I've done that women have something really, really strong to add to the environment offshore. Physically, there may be elements of it that um, that uh, a lighter average female form cannot handle in the same way as an average male form. And I, I put the, the caveat average on there. Um, we should remember that um, now Dame Ellen MacArthur came second in the Vendée Globe, second only to Le Professor uh, Michel Desjoyeaux. Um, uh, so can women go offshore and, and be successful and competitive and win offshore? Absolutely. Um, I think they have emotional fortitude to uh, actually do better offshore than most men. And I think that with a, a little bit of work um, uh, on, on, on physical form can absolutely handle any of the rigors at sea, most of which are, are psychological. So uh, it's a pity when any woman um, is, is dropping out of uh, an offshore event because uh, we lose the opportunity to once again um, say, look, this is this is an arena in which women can really compete and win and 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 be just as good as the guys, um, if not better. So um, a pity. She goes off. She is safe. That's the most important thing. As we've said, that uh, that piece of damage can lead to actually losing the boat. So um, uh, uh, I hope that she's able to get um, get to shore without any further uh, concerns. I'm sure that her team will be looking after her and will continue to watch the uh, the the Vendée Globe and these. Uh, these later sections of it. I think this is where it's going to get interesting. Okay. Um, if you uh, have been following the virtual regatta, um, the virtual regatta boats are actually quite a long way ahead of the real world um, Vendee boats. Uh, we're already north of the um, uh, equator. I am in about 21,000th position, which uh, <laughs> is uh, a pretty mad situation to be in when you're racing. Literally, I know from uh, the, the person that's in first is about 150 miles to the northeast of me. And I think actually we're just about to go through a transition here where a lot of boats which are in the 20,000th to 35,000th 
are uh, going to start to move ahead. There's a rotation coming. We're, we're getting closer to the Azores and there's a very narrow um, passageway opening up in the weather ahead of us in the next 12 to 24 hours. And uh, how you slot into that is going to radically change the face of the front of the virtual fleet. Um, I've, I've been back in 55,000th position. I've been up in 10,000th position. Um, it's uh, it's pretty exciting. Uh, they've got over 750,000 people uh, in that race. Um, it's probably a little bit late to join now, but um, have a look. The, uh, Virtual Regatta, I'm not sponsored by them or anything else, but they do have sailing races going on all the time. The Rourke Transatlantic has just started. That's one that you can join. There's another one which is following the Tara Ocean uh, Round the World um, sailing event. Uh, you can race with them. That's setting off in a couple of days' time. And I would say that for cruisers or for racers, it is an opportunity to sit and look at, you know, okay, I'm going to do the, the weather routing here. They have a little button that you can click and and, and do weather routing uh, right there in the game. Um, I think it has meaningful value as something to practice and train with. You're sitting at home, you're at work, you're doing whatever. Make a decision about the weather. See how it plays out. See how other people's decisions play out. Um, if you're constantly doing it, it's it's uh, it's a it's a great way to improve the, your performance as a cruiser. Like at the end of the day, unless you are one of a rare band of people who just want to be at sea like all the time for the sake of being at sea, cruising is based on getting from A to B so that you can enjoy A and you can enjoy B. And uh, the less a certain amount of time in between is great, but too much of it can end up being a real headache. And so uh, that's why I say the world between cruising and racing could do with narrowing slightly. Um, have a look at this essentially racing game, even though you're a cruiser, and have a see if there's something in there that can uh, help you develop your skill set. It's, uh, it's lots of fun. So I shall keep you up to date with, uh, with where I'm at in it. Um, I'm second in my province, second in uh, in Nova Scotia at the moment. The person that's leading is called G Budgeon, and um, I'd love to know who G Budgeon is. I've got to get to grips with who are the sailors here in Nova Scotia, because obviously we're going to be doing a lot more base in Nova Scotia soon. I'd love to make uh, contact, but um, I'm 168th in Canada, which doesn't bode well for my uh, abilities on a national level. So there's at least 167 other people in Canada that I need to lead to learn from. So. If you're one of them, uh, write to me and tell me tell me why I'm so slow. Um, what's next? Okay, so the um, the we'll go with the West about first. I've got the West about and what's happening with Spartan and what's happening with the Ocean Globe race to do. We're just on about an hour here. Um, I think we can fit it in. Uh, West about a lot of people asking me what's going on with that. The good news is it's going to happen. Okay, it's going to happen. How do I know? Well, because uh, I was lucky enough to get offered one third of the money for the replacement of the rig, which is a huge amount from an individual, uh, a Canadian individual. And uh, I can only uh, extend my my great thanks to that person. I'm, uh, I'll find out if it's okay to mention his name uh, later on, but uh, you know who you are. And um, just, just a massive, well, kick up the ass, to be absolutely honest for me. I, I guess, you know, I put so much effort in over the summer to get the boat ready. She's she's basically there. She's basically ready to go. But um, you just had this cripplingly large bill of uh, 80 odd thousand Canadian, like uh, 70 odd thousand US, uh, 55,000 euros to uh, to get the rigging. And there's just no way of shortcutting it. There's no way that you can go, oh, you know, well, I'll do this, I'll do that. If I was to go, people have said to me, well, I'll put rod rigging on it. Well, yeah, I can do that. And it's 150 kilos heavier than the synthetic rigging and every kilo 
that I uh, put up the rig takes five kilos effectively off my keel. So that's like, hey, why not set off on a record attempt? And the first thing we're going to do is take uh, more, about 15 to just under 20% of the weight of your keel off the boat. This is our, this is our performance idea. We're going to remove 17.8% of the weight of your keel and then we'll set you off around the world. Obviously, clearly, it's a very bad idea. So it had to be that kind of synthetic rigging. And my my uh, mystery benefactor has come in with a third of the money, which is awesome. And then I'm hoping that uh, that the, the, the things I'm going to tell you about now with Spartan and the Ocean Globe Race, that money coming in for those events is what will be able to um, put the rest of the rigging on. And actually, uh, because we've already started to sign people up for the Ocean Globe race, um, I can tell you that we've already got the money uh, on the books, ready to come in January for the replacement of the rigging, which means that as soon as that rigging is on board the boat, which will be March, uh, this boat, uh, the boat which I know is Falcon, but her name for this event at the moment is uh, the Pride of Nova Scotia, she will be ready to set off on target uh, in late October, early November of 2021. And I will say this, um, I was playing the Vendee Globe uh, virtual regatta with Rob, which uses exactly the same weather information, which is, you know, happening is out there in the world. It's real gribs, it's real information. And Rob and I both noticed the same thing. Had I set off at the same time as the Vendee fleet, just before, just after, the weather on the east coast of South America, which is where I would have been heading for my West Around the World record attempt, the weather on the east coast of South America at that time was dreadful for me trying to get to Cape Horn. It was very, very light. It would have been safe because it was light, but it would have been very slow. And my estimates are that I needed to be at um, Cape Horn within 30 days. My estimate is it would take me at least 43 days to get to Cape Horn with the weather patterns that were in play, um, which means I would already been 13 days behind target going into the Southern Ocean for the worst part of it. So I think psychologically that had been very difficult. Um, as we are now going into January, I would have been um, halfway. I would have been, yeah, I would have been, I've been setting off um, from New Zealand on my way to Cape Lewin now in Western Australia. And I would have been doing that upwind knowing that it was very, very unlikely that I could have beaten the record. So um, I think um, the way that it's worked out, it's given me at least a chance that the weather in 2021 is going to be more uh, consistent and, and more helpful. Um, and Rob's uh, prediction as a, as a meteorologist um, is that um, the, is it the, it's the El Nina and El Nino, right? So whichever one's coming next year should stabilize the weather a little bit. And that might mean that it's actually a better chance for me going next year rather than this year. So who knew? Uh, another silver lining uh, where I thought there was only gray clouds. So uh, that boat getting finished off, I can tell you the engine's done, the interior of the boat's done, the deck's done, the electronics are there. Um, I need to get, I'm getting a new set of Timo back toe life jackets for the boat. Um, and then we are off uh, in March, heading south from Nova Scotia to our first event of the year, which is to join Jody and the guys down in St. Petersburg. And they are doing the Regatta del Sol, Al Sol. And we are all hoping, fingers crossed, that that event can, can happen uh, on time, um, as we're expecting right now that it should. But obviously, COVID being what it is and the spread of it being what it is, we won't know that until uh, a little bit later on. But 
fingers crossed, everything good there. So Westabout is happening. I will go and change the GoFundMe site and I'll go and change what's going on on Patreon and just uh, reflect that. Um, the end of the year was definitely for me, having gone through a lot of personal changes in my, my personal life, um, the company coming to a, a screaming stop with COVID, uh, missing out by just the cost of that rigging on going west around the world. I got to say, I just had to basically pull in my horns through Christmas and New Year and just uh, emotionally and physically get ready for 2021. Um, my greatest fear in 2021 is that actually the range of things that are available, the possibilities that lie ahead of me, my greatest fear is that I will not actually get the most out of them. And this gives me an opportunity now to talk a little bit about what Spartan is going to be doing in uh, in 2021 and the Ocean Globe Race. So the Ocean Globe Race, if you've not been on board with it, is a round-the-world event which is set to um, re- build and relive and and uh, refresh the memory of what was the original Whitbread race in the 80s and 90s that became the Volvo race that um, that's obviously held our attention with the Volvo 70s and the Volvo 65s in the recent 20 years. But the, the Whitbread was was more than the Volvo in some ways. I think it was a time when there was um, real personalities out on the water, where there were um, battles which were just epic um, in, in, a, in an area of racing which was still very, very new. You know, the first around the world solo event was in 1969 with the Golden Gobe event. Um, the Whitbread was getting going in 79 and it was still a little bit of an unknown as to whether could this could be done there were unfortunately people lost at sea there were boats dismasted it was it was it was the frontier of things and uh, i think it was a time when it was still a lot more kind of um it was a lot more what's the right word here it was it was more real in a way it was more kind of visceral it was more um on the edge it didn't have that feeling of like oh yeah off they go around like uh, it, it was more like 1960s formula one racing as opposed to modern racing it was still an unknown and safety was still at on the is this safe or is this not safe that people didn't really know did we want 100 foot boats we want 60 foot boats we want 80 foot boats they didn't know all the answers they were still filling in the gaps with uh, a little bit of black art and uh, a little bit of uh, wish and hope and um, and the whip bread was legendary and if you were into sailing uh, in the 80s in the 90s then those boats that are up on the wall um, you know things like Steinlager 2 um, uh, Rothmans Merritt uh, later on, boats like Yamaha and uh, and uh, a News Corps when they got into the um, the latest uh, iteration of the of the Whitbread 60s, which then became the Volvo 60s. It was an epic uh, thing, and this event is being put on by Don McIntyre. Don is the guy that put on the Golden uh, Globe recreation a couple of years back. I think that that perhaps was his first go at doing a round the world event. Um, it happened. We got uh, our winner in uh, Jean-Luc Vandenheed, or we know is also the person that holds the West Around the World record. So someone who I always keep a beady eye on what he's doing. Um, but also Mark Slats uh, came out, the Dutch guy, and uh, and some amazing stories. So the Ocean Globe race is happening in 2023. There are a number of different divisions. Um, some of them are really extolling the very original kind of spirit of the event with um, limitations on modern technology that the boats will have on board. We're going to be racing in the classic division, which is um, boats from that were the, the Whitbread 60s. 
and we may have the opportunity to actually enter a maxi in the race at the moment. I'm working on this. Um, it involves a lot of different things all coming together, some of which are a little bit limited by COVID, but it may be that we can actually put two boats into this event. One would be Challenger, which as we know has got the new keel, the new keel bolts. We've had all of the hull inspected now. She's A1. She's gonna be given a complete refit before we go. And I already have three people who are gonna be joining us. And uh, they are uh, Javier and Mans and Stefan have already signed on for the 2023. We're gonna be offering two weeks of training in 2021, two weeks in 2022, and then at least two weeks in 2023 on our way up to the race. That training is gonna be offered in both North America and in Europe. Um, the boats will be doing a transatlantic and then the uh, a big change for Spartan will be heading off in a very different direction. Previously, what Spartan's always done is gone from uh, Newfoundland uh, across to the UK, uh, maybe down into the Mediterranean for things like the Middle Sea Race and then back out to the Canaries for either Rourke Transat or for Arc, cross the Atlantic in the depths of winter get to the Caribbean and leave the boats there for a couple of months before the Caribbean season started, then do the 600, the Heineken, uh, Antigua Sailing Week, and then race north with the Antigua to Bermuda race, go to Newport if there's things like the Newport Bermuda race on, and then back to Nova Scotia. That was our yearly circuit of the Atlantic. We're going to be changing all of that. And that is me looking directly at the market and seeing what it is that people want to do. I get so many requests from people that want to go up into Northern Europe and then go across and see Iceland and Greenland. So I have an opportunity to um, choose where we go and where we do this stuff. So talking to regular clients of Spartan, what do they want to do? What's new? What's exciting? The overwhelming response has been that people want to see um, a more interesting itinerary, which actually focuses more on destinations rather than races. So we have these race boats, which we use at Spartan. We've always had them, and I believe very much in them for sail training and for extended offshore sailing because they're the safest uh, monohull boats in the world. If you're talking about a 60, 70, 80 foot Kevlar carbon race boat with a fixed keel and with a single rudder, you are looking at literally the safest way of going offshore bar, well, some people would say maybe a big steel boat is stronger or a big aluminum boat is stronger. Maybe I like the boats which have got foam core um, uh, hull construction, which means that you have uh, a huge amount of flotation built into the boat. If there was some kind of catastrophic incident, um, you're not dealing with something which is dead weight, which is what you're dealing with when you've got a big steel or aluminum boat. The big composite boats for me are the way to go. Big carbon boats when you're doing long mileage and, and uh, uh, you know doing a lot of sail training on and off the dock all the time. Carbon boats can be very delicate. Big carbon um, uh, boats uh, also require some very specific kinds of uh, maintenance and are subject to some particular kinds of um, wear and tear. Big Kevlar boats are also exotic, but they're a little bit more understood. They've been around a lot longer. A lot more boatyards can deal with them. Um, and they are inherently a lot stronger because the materials, the, the Kevlar are a lot stronger. It needs to be looked after. There's no way you can scrimp on a, on a big uh, a Kevlar boat. Um, but they are very, very strong. So I have these race boats because I believe in their strength and their ability to promote the most 
safe kind of offshore voyaging for people of all skill levels. And that's, of course, what Spartan does. We are happy if someone knows nothing at all about sailing or if they've done a lot of sailing and want to develop their skill set. But the best possible environment for the transmission of skills for safe offshore voyaging is actually to be voyaging when there's more time to talk things through. Uh, there's no great um, pressure to be changing things as fast as possible and racing changes and huge spinnakers in motion. The amount of damage that we sustain, uh, yeah, it's it's not great from a business point of view, but it's also very damaging to people's uh, confidence if they have been involved in some situation where something's been damaged. Um, that doesn't tend to happen if we've got a little bit more time to do things. So I think as my passion is sail training and the development of seamanship skills it is fitting and correct that we should um, get Spartan to focus more on uh, destinations and a really good opportunity to develop seamanship in a more controlled and, and slower moving environment. And that's that's me getting that directly from feedback from people that have sailed on the boats many times before. So I'm moving completely away from doing uh, racing with Spartan. Um, if we have more than one boat on the water at any one time, we can elect to have a race for the day, get the boats close together, and then uh, race for the day or race through the night or race from A to B. We can do that between us. But once we get into racing with um, uh, very close racing down in the Caribbean. The the stress on me as a skipper, um, the stress on the people, the participants coming on board the boats when we're, it's very exciting to go into big start lines with lots of other thundering 60, 70, 80 foot boats. But the amount of pressure that is on people, I think is not a good environment for, for sail training. So what I'm going to be doing in 2021 we're going to do Regatta del Sol al Sol down in uh, St. Petersburg, moving down to Mexico. We'll then bring the boats back up to Miami and making sure that everything we do is as safe with COVID restrictions as possible. We're going to be doing um, a voyage which goes from uh, Miami up to uh, Newport, Rhode Island, um, or I may alter that just slightly and go into Boston. It may be that you can get off in Newport uh, or go to Boston. I want to bring it a little bit up more around the corner to places which are very close geographically to me. I want to see how that can work. Both are exciting destinations. I think we'll go Miami to Newport and Newport to Boston and get off at whichever one you want. There's only a very short period between the two. Uh, for some people, time is a constraint. For others, they just want to be out there as long as they can. Going through the Cape Cod Canal is not to be missed. I did do that once uh, in 2020. It was awesome. I really want to go and do it again. So we'll go up to Newport and then on to Boston. And then I'll bring the boat back to Nova Scotia. And later in the year, we'll be going from Nova Scotia to uh, Saint-Pierre-Miquelon, which is the tiny French uh, island, which is just offshore from um, Newfoundland. It's a French territory. Everything there is France. It's an internal flight between Saint-Pierre and France. So a fantastic place to go. It's real French culture. We're then going to go on to uh, St. John's in Newfoundland, which if you've not heard of Newfoundland before, you've not heard of St. John's, it is, uh, it's a classic destination. It's a brilliant place to go out fantastically strong heritage, same as Nova Scotia, of the sea, uh, very much still uh, an active um, uh, deep water port for all the supply ships which are going out to the oil fields off of, uh, Nova, off of Nova Scotia and off of Newfoundland. Uh, we will then depart from there and head across in a transatlantic, which we call the Marconi, which is uh, recreating the voyage, oh, not the voyage, <laughs> the transmission of Marconi in 1904 across the Atlantic, the first ever wireless transmission across the uh, across the Atlantic. Um, we'll come into the UK then, into Falmouth, which is close to where Marconi sent that first transmission. And then we will uh, be doing um, an event there, which fits in with 
basically what I and the feedback I get from you we want to do. I was going to go and do the Fastnet race. I'm not going to do it. The, the, the Fastnet as it was uh, has changed now. The, the, the finishing point is no longer going to be back in Plymouth. Um, I personally uh, absolutely support the Royal Ocean Racing Club's decision to finish the event in um, in Cherbourg. Uh, a place which I've traveled to many times. I think they're going to have a fantastic welcome there. But for me personally, I don't want to do any racing this year. It adds a level of stress to things which uh, I don't think is in any way beneficial to what we're doing. So I'm going to try and find that bridge between cruises and races. We're going to go cruising in racing boats. How about that? Um, so I think we'll maybe do a trip out and up to Kinsale, which is on the way to the you know Fastnet Rock. You, you, you're you very, very close to it. We'll maybe go around Fastnet. We'll do it in our own time and uh, we'll experience the course. We'll experience that um, that part of the world will go into Kinsale, which is so beautiful. It's such a fantastic destination. Maybe we'll stop at the Silly Islands on the way back. I'm going to get these things uh, tied in. And then we're going to go up to Cowes, which is another great uh, stepping off point on the British South Coast. And we're going to go from Cowes up to Norway. Uh, we may stop off on the way. I'm, I'm being basically a little bit vague about this. I have yet to write this down tight. I'm hoping that you're going to write in and go, hey, I really want to go to Imauden. I really want to go to Hull. I want to... That's fine. Let's work it out. That's what this is going to be about. Where do we want to go? We've got these fantastic boats to 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 learn from and to use and to to enjoy. Um, where do we want to go with them? I personally want to go to Norway. I want to go to the fjords. I want to see what's going on there. I've never been to Norway before. I've got a lot of people that listen to the podcast who are telling me, come and see this beautiful country. So here I come. Um, I had a request from a close friend who wants to go to the Faroe Islands. So I'm like, hey, you know what? I don't even know particularly where the Faroe Islands are. Um, I started looking into it. They're beautiful. They're gorgeous. They're exciting. They've got a fantastic culture and a community. Let's go to the Faroe Islands. And then we're going to go on to Iceland, which is somewhere I have wanted to go for 20 years at least. Uh, the land of fire and ice. I want to go and see what that's about. And then the only place to go after that on the way back to Nova Scotia is Greenland. Um, as I've said before, I think we should just take like blank signposts and we'll just go and like name places. Because when you look on a chart, look on a map, it's got a name. So let's go and make some of our own. We'll We'll have Spartanville or something. And we can we can have a place called Sparta. We'll name it. I wonder if you can legally name like random pieces of places in Greenland. We can name a place Sparta. And um, and then we'll bring the boats back. Um, we're going to go and visit a few places in uh, Newfoundland, maybe on the way back, and then come into Nova Scotia. So don't go looking for this on the website yet. The website is just about to go through a big renovation. I've just hired a company that are going to be changing the whole look of it and adding a lot more of the media content. Um, I have now subscribed to a service which is transcribing all of these podcasts. God help them. I hope it's computer and not people else. They'll be, they'll be killing themselves uh, with boredom listening to me. But um, the transcriptions of the podcast will be on there as well. So we'll have the YouTube stuff. We'll have the podcast. And then um, I am doubling down on 2021 on the online seamanship courses. I kind of got it going on Patreon, but it's not kind of the, the right format for it. Basically, what I was doing was releasing the videos on YouTube um, without um, sharing the links. And then those patrons who were um, putting their money in $20 a month to, to find out what was going on with that on Patreon, they were meant to be the only ones accessing them. And from whatever's going on on YouTube, basically a lot of people are accessing them um, outside of the format. So I have discovered now how to do that properly, have an online classroom and bring whatever it is that I know to as many people as possible. So we're all enjoying ourselves as much as possible at sea and we're as safe as possible. So that's the outlook basically for 2021. So how can you get involved? 
write to me at csmthemariner at gmail.com. That's csmthemariner at gmail.com. And uh, if you've got information that you want to share on the podcast, if you've got questions, if you've got ideas for where we should go in Norway and the Faroe Islands and all this stuff, if you're interested in the Ocean Globe Race, come and get involved in that. At the moment, we are only selling places on Challenger. There are going to be 10 places available um, and that's it. Three of them are already filled. Um, I'm limiting it to 10 because what I'm going to attempt to do is I'm going to try and find ways to get as many young people as possible onto these boats uh, as we can. It's one of the stipulations of the race to have uh, young crew members. I want to get um, those groups of people that don't normally go to sea um, onto the boats. I know with my friend Ramesh, uh, who's uh, there at the moment in uh, Dubai. I hope you're doing well, Ramesh. I hope that you're safe and uh, that finding your way through COVID. But he and I were at the end of the um, Fastnet race a couple of years back, and we stood on the dock in Plymouth looking at this fantastic flotilla of boats. And we kind of commented to each other like, where are the women sailors? Where are the Indian sailors? Where are the black sailors? Where are the disabled sailors? Like sailing has so much more to offer than many other sports because it's something where you can actually change the nature of who you are. You can learn more about other people. You can learn more about, you know, who you are and, and your place in the world from going offshore and 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 uh, and being faced with challenge and overcoming it and, and learning interpersonal skills and communication skills and leadership skills. I think this kind of sailing is, is an area where we want to get as many young people in as possible with as diverse a group of people as possible. So I'm going to investigate how those last four positions on the boat can be sponsored by businesses and allow young people um, to get onto the boats and from people from diverse backgrounds onto the boats so that um, so we share sailing with as many people as possible. So there will only be 10 spaces available. Let's say three are gone already. The Ocean Globe Race revisiting the uh, Whitbread route around the world. It's going to be divided into five legs around the world. And um, write to me, um, ask me questions. You can't find it on the website right now. You can't find uh, anything about this anywhere apart from writing to me. And um, I think that we'll fill that up very, very quickly. Um, and then we may have this opportunity to put another boat onto the water if we have success with the first one. So lots going on there. Um, I'm very excited and I have to say thank you very much to uh, Javier who um, has a background in writing contracts with uh, intellectual rights and was able to solidify the contract that we have and adapt the one that we have so that we could uh, we could offer a very solid, safe package for those who want to, you know, I think if COVID's done nothing else, it's definitely got people thinking about what's important to them and what they want to do with their lives. Um, the opportunity to go and race around the world is something that a lot of people were, you know, will have thought, oh, I want to do that one day. Well, one day's come calling, you know, COVID has shown us all quite how fragile all of this is, me, myself in, included. And uh, so I want to get out there and I want to do exciting things. I'm going to challenge myself and go and do this West Around the World campaign in uh, October of 2021. You guys are going to come with me. We'll start telling the story of that via the podcast, via the videos on YouTube via the blog on the web page, which is getting redesigned. But if you want to get out there um, and exhibit a small, uh, sorry, experience a small amount of that, come and join one of these Spartan events. They'll be online in the next couple of weeks. And I'll tell you via the podcast when that's uh, ready for you to sign up. Um, or if you want to go for the big one, 
talk to me, csmthemariner at gmail.com about the Ocean Globe race. Um, we'll get you talking to the guys who've already signed up and others who have sailed with me. And let's see if this is something that you want to go and do. I got to say, I am, I'm excited from a personal point of view to be involved in that race. There are already 30 competitors entered in the race. It's not some uh, flim flam thing. Um, Don McIntyre's got it all screwed to the deck. Um, our, our particular uh, um, uh, class that we're going to be in is going to be very competitive. Um, and, uh, and I'm excited on behalf of Nova Scotia because all of the boats that we're going to enter are all going to carry the Nova Scotia branding. Um, I am still 100% uh, behind pushing the province where I live as much as I possibly can and giving them the biggest possible jumpstart on 2021 and the years ahead by doing my part to to advertise them so this is going to be a canadian uh, a nova scotian branded uh, campaign and um let's fill the boats up it's going to be a tight group of people we're going to be developing skills we're going to be out there to be competitive but i'll tell you right now that safety and uh and people's uh psychological and emotional safety will come above anything else so if you want some out and out balls to the wall um do or die type thing go and ask somebody else to go on their boat around the world we're going to be uh pushing but we're going to be enjoying ourselves and above all we're going to be safe on boats which have been brought to as new condition before we set off so i told you there was a lot going on there is a lot going on i hope that wasn't too rambly for you um uh, the next episode, I'm going to be looking at um, isolation. And uh, as I said at the beginning, I'm committing myself now to uh, doing one of these every day of the week. I was thinking of even changing the name of the podcast to the Everyday Sailing Podcast, but um, we're here. We're not changing the music, by the way. <laughs> I must have had 20 people email me and say, don't change the music. It is whatever it is. Um, and uh, I will also uh, share with you the fact that I actually composed that piece of music. So. Um, that's it. That's what the Mariner sounds like. Um, but the sub the subtext now will be the everyday uh, sailing podcast. So um, whether it's cruising, whether it's voyaging, whether it's dreams, whether it's actual boats, whether it's a thousand dollar piece of crap in the corner that you're trying to like make into something for you and your family or a multi-million dollar boat, it's all sailing. It's all of interest for me. Um, write to me, tell me what you're up to and um Let's make this a place that we can tune in each day and uh, and hear about sailing and listen to sailing stuff. So uh, until tomorrow, that's my my covenant with you now. Until tomorrow, I hope that wherever you are and whatever you're doing, you are safe and sound and looking after yourself and looking after those around you. Keep a hold of those dreams. Um, we are all here. We are all making our way through difficult times. Better times will come in the future and we need to be ready to go with those dreams ready to make them happen when the dreams have gone you may still exist but you have ceased to live let's make sure a little bit of a dreamer remains uh, despite all the terrible news that surrounds us at the moment so until tomorrow have a good one cheers <laughs>